Let me begin by asking you a very weighty question. What matters most in life? Just pause and time out and think about it. How would you answer the question, what matters most in life? What's most important? Above all else, I'm going, you know, important, 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 most important above all else in life. Now, I realize I popped that on you and you're going, well, I can't even think right now. I'm thinking about something else, you know, to go to something that weighty. And yet, think about this, how, uh, think about the consequences of not having an answer. Like, I can't answer, I don't know. Think about the consequences of having no answer for what's most important. I think we'd all go, well, the, the odds are that we will, then you'll live your life in such a way that you, all chances are, you, you, quite frankly, you're gonna miss what's most important if you don't even know what it is. How about this? Can, can you think of, of, uh, of living your life thinking you know what matters most? And then getting to the end of your life in realizing, uh-oh, that wasn't it. I mean, this is not just theory. We tend to live our lives oftentimes without the answer to that question being clear. Uh, you know, I, I think of it, you know, I'm asking myself that. I go, man, I'm not even qualified to answer that question. And quite frankly, I think that's true. I'm going to go to a biblical worldview here. I realize that I'm, I'm cutting to the quick to say if we, if we understand the scriptures as we do, then, then I would suggest that only God is capable of answering that question truthfully and authoritatively. It would make sense. The only one that can answer what's most important is the one who spoke all things into being who upholds all things by the word of his power and who is moving all things toward his ultimate purpose. And then it would make sense, you know, God, you're the only one that can answer for us what matters most in life. The question is, has he? Well, no surprise, we believe he has. And we're gonna spend the next, this week included, four weeks, five weeks total, in one little passage of scripture where we believe God has answered this most clearly and succinctly. It comes through the pen of Paul when he writes the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, you can open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11. And we are going to spend these next five weeks, we're going to only be in those 11 verses. Now, I know it's a little different than how we're normally going to teach. We're teaching through a book or a section of a book of the Bible. We're just going to go to those 11 verses week after week after week after week after week. We're going to read the whole, but then take one small section so that we dive way deep into this particular text. And 
our prayer is that Paul's answer will become so deeply embedded in our hearts and souls that we are transformed truly, personally, and corporately. Now, before we look at these 11 verses, we are going to practice our Bible study method skills, of course, and we know we can't take those 11 verses on their own. They are in a context, and that's toward the end of the book. So really what I want to do very briefly is give you a very quick overview of the book in which this section is contained, the book of 1 Corinthians. You don't really, you don't need to take any notes on this. Just listen. It's just a, uh, you know, a Cliff Notes overview that will get us to uh, verses 1 through 11, because based on the context, this has huge implications for taking those 11 verses and going, well, what did he mean by that? And how does that apply to me and my life, you see? Okay, overview of 1 Corinthians. We know from Acts 18 that Paul uh, spent about 18 months in the city of, of Corinth on his second missionary journey. And while in this city of Corinth, Paul planted a church. Well, what does that mean, he planted a church? Well, he he, he preached the gospel. People came to faith in Christ. And do you know they began to meet together and worship together and study the word together? They began to meet like we do where we, we meet to proclaim Christ, to mature in the faith and be equipped to give our lives away. That was happening in the city of Corinth as Paul planted this church. It was in his day a thriving city. Y'all, it's, it was huge. I mean, by, by, by their standards and ours, they think 700,000 people in the city of, of Corinth. It was home to the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And at this temple, there were available to all a thousand consecrated prostitutes for use in worship at no cost. This is, this is the culture, this is the, the, the vibe of, of Corinth, the city. It was located on this isthmus, which is just a strip of land, and you got water above, water below, and so tra- travelers would come here, cross the land, and then continue on, goods and everything. So it was a, it was a world uh, a trading center. People from all over the, the world would come through it and pass through Corinth. This is from uh, Talk Through the New Testament, Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson, as they overview the city of Corinth. They write, quote, This cosmopolitan center thrived on commerce, entertainment, vice, and corruption. Pleasure seekers came there to spend money on holiday for morality. Corinth became so notorious for its evils that the term to Corinthiazomai, which means to act like a Corinthian, became a synonym for debauchery and prostitution, end quote. How about that for a city? About four years after leaving Corinth, Paul's on his third missionary journey, and he's in the city of Ephesus. And he, he gets word, trouble at the church in Corinth. And he writes a letter to them. This is somewhat fascinating, interesting. He writes a letter that we don't have. He refers to it in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, of which I wrote before. And we don't have that letter. It is not in our canon of Scripture. Well, then Paul gets more communication, and this time it seems it was written. In other words, someone hands him a letter, and in it, the church at Corinth has written him and asks him all these questions about all these things and all these challenges and all these problems. Paul then takes his pen and writes the book we call First. Corinthians. Now, the book 
It is easily summarized. It is a letter of correction, just correction. You're off, you need to be here. You're out of it, you need to be here. It's a book of correction. When people outline, you know, just look at an outline of the book of 1 Corinthians, it's got these three sections. Here's the words, here's the words they use to outline the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. Division, disorder, difficulties. That's great. Welcome to the church at Corinth, you know. Welcome to all churches in many ways. I'm going to take you on a very quick survey that will lead us right up to chapter 15. You don't have to turn to these verses. Again, just listen. I'll I'll, I'll read them. I'll flip through my Bible for you. Chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes, For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. They didn't get along. They, they, they had party spirits. They had cliques. They had, you know, we kind of do this. You guys do that. You, I'm following so-and-so. They, they, conflict and division, quite frankly, with, excuse me, within the church. Chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Why did he say that? Because they thought they were wise and wiser than they thought. They had an arrogant, you read it, they they had this arrogant sense about them. They had the gnosis, the knowledge. We have special knowledge. We're special. We're above you. You don't have it. Chapter five, verse one, he says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. The Gentiles aren't even doing this, those outside. That someone has his father's wife. There is a son having sexual relations with his stepmom in the church, and nothing's happening. No one says anything. Nothing's done about it. Immorality, sexual perversion. He addresses all of it within the church, chapter 6, verse 1, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? They were a larger church, maybe. They actually did business with each other, and something went awry in a business deal, and one of them sued the other. You know, it's, do you, you sue each other before unrighteous judges? That, You didn't do anything about the guy sleeping with his stepmom, but you're going to sue one another. This is the church at Corinth. It was wrong. Lawsuits. Chapter 7, on the whole, he addresses uh, sex in marriage. He addresses divorce, remarriage, total confusion about the nature and purpose of marriage. Chapters 8 through 10 are about those who use newfound liberty in Christ to actually offend and harm others. It's the meat sacrifice to idols section. So, so some have gone, ooh, bug. Some have gone, um, I saw the thing fly by. Next thing I know, it's on my head. I'm going, <laughs> land on somebody else. Um, they, they're, they're, now I'm totally lost. Uh, an, it's just a total mess that the church is absolutely uh, confused about their liberty, even in Christ. And they're, they're actually hurting each other with their liberty. How about that? He goes on in chapter 11 to show that their church services are disorderly, the Lord's tables abused, roles are muddied, roles of men and women within the context of the church. And then three whole chapters, y'all. This is rather, it's kind of embarrassing in a way when you think about it. Three whole chapters on the misuse of spiritual gifts. How about that? That God would gift, God would gift the church 
with, with, with gifts for the building up of the body, and they're totally whacked out on the gifts themselves. This is the church at Corinth. I want you to know, uh, it's not that the culture, because I described the culture, and think about it, it was a crazy, decadent, dark culture. Y'all, let's, let's not ignore this. It's our culture. This is, this is our culture. This is our world we live in, even as theirs. Well, it's not that the culture came and put a siege upon the church at Corinth, which surrounded them. We're going to starve you out till you let us in. That's not what happened, is it? What happened? They opened the doors to the culture, you see. The culture came in within the church, and then the church collapses upon itself. How about some lessons in that for you and I, for us, even today? Well, now we come to chapter 15, you see. And when we get to chapter 15, it's a bit of an anomaly in this way. It doesn't appear that Paul is kind of following his trajectory of answering questions they've asked. Uh, Note it this way, in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things you wrote, let me respond. And he responds. Chapter 12, verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, you ask, let me tell you. Even chapter 16, verse 1, Now concerning the collection, let me tell you. You get to chapter 15, and he begins, Now I make known to you. You know, he's just got a different tone when he comes to chapter 15. I read this from Craig Blomberg, excellent commentary, and it kind of got my thinking aligned here. He said, quote, it's possible that chapter 15 may be addressing the otherwise unstated issue at the root of all the other issues that are their problem. How about that? I think Paul does. That he's addressed the fruit, you guys, it's, that's bad fruit, that's rotten. And now in 15, he goes, you know what? Let me go to the root, the very taproot of all these issues. And when he does, I think it would be appropriate to say, y'all, he is addressing the taproot of your issues and my issues, all of them as well. I would suggest he's answering the question. Let me tell you what matters most. Uh, Let me be clear about what's most important. Now listen to his answer. If you've got your Bibles open, just follow along as I read. Listen carefully to Paul's words as he answers that question. God's word to you and to me this Lord's day. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, emphasis added, what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared 
to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul's answer to the question, what matters most? The gospel matters most. The word gospel is, it's the Greek word euangelion. Some might say evangelion. It's it's totally fine. It, it, It means Good news. It was in the Old Testament, a, a, a runner would come to, to, to report that the battle was won. So the, it comes and says to the, to the people in the city, hey, we won. It's good news. It's declared because of what had happened on the battlefield. In the New Testament, the word is used 70 plus times, 60 of those times by the apostle Paul. Paul loved the good news, the gospel. Um, when he speaks here in chapter 15, by the way, he, he says it three times in the first two verses, uses the root of, uh, of the word gospel. Of course, it's clear in our English translations. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, euangelion. But then he goes on and says, the gospel, which I euangelizo. So it's still gospel. It's, I made known to you the gospel, which I gospeled to you. He goes on, verse two, by which you are saved if you hold fast the word, which I gospeled to you. I proclaimed the good news. Well, what is the good news? So what's the good news? Well, again, we're here because he states it absolutely without fluff. In verses three through five, therefore I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here we go. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. I think when we use the term gospel, um, we can ourselves be a little confused. And, and, and let me just say this. I know and to, if, you, if you, you know, read much in evangelicalism or the church world or whatever, quite frankly, the word's overused, if I, if I can even say that. You know, it's just gospel, gospel, gospel. And we can get that way. We don't want to be that way. But what we want to be is when we say gospel, we want to, we want to be clear what it mean. When, when Paul says in verse 5, chapter 15, verse 1, he said, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel, I'm going to tell you something, they knew. But we've got a little fuzz around the edges, I think, at times. I spent, uh, I spent an hour and a half with a team down in downtown Franklin last week. And I simply walked around and I asked this question of folks. And I think you'll even hear in their response some of what I think we feel. Clarity and maybe not so clear. I want you to listen to them as they answer the question I ask. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel. 
All right, totally out of the blue. I'm Lloyd, by the way. What is the gospel? The gospel. The gospel is the word of God. Um, the word of God. The Bible. The gospel is the word of Christ. What is a gospel? What is the gospel? Uh, the word of God. The word of God. I said it's the good news. The gospel. Um, it's something religious. What is the gospel? Well, it's a, it's a belief. Uh, it's kind of what guides you in your your um, your spirit. Something that is um, wording that people think is significant to them in some way. First thing I think of is religious music. Okay, what what part of Texas did you grow up in, by the way? Fort Worth. Okay. Well, then there's plenty of gospel around there, I'm sure. <laughs> I would say there's no shortage. You're right. Could I interrupt y'all for a moment? What is the gospel? The Bible. The Bible and like what he has to say to us in the Bible. It's like he it's like his love letter to us. The gospel, God's inspired word. It's God speaking to us through his word. What does it mean for you kind of day to day? Was it what does it mean for you day to day? Trying to be a better person, be more Christ-like. Jesus came to save us um, because we're not good enough. So how to treat others? All the commandments. To love one another. So for like for God to love the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever pleases in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You must be in Awana or something. <laughs> God sent his only begotten son to come and die for you. And it's the handbook of life, like how to live, how to grow, how to set your mind on heaven. Well, he died for us, for our sins and uh, the grace. And he's given us an opportunity to know him personally. Well, it depends on how you interpret it. That he died for our sins and that the bottom line is if you believe in me, you will be saved. I think you give a good life and uh, you've lived according to the gospel. I don't know what more to say. I, uh, I, I love doing that. I hate doing that. I'm an introvert. It's just hard to go up to people and just you know, continue. So I, I could do about an hour of that. But so I was so respect their responses. I mean, the, 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 it was amazing. The, the, the honesty and, uh, quite frankly, the clarity and the lack of clarity. And were I to come up to you, and you didn't know we just did that, and I put the microphone on you and said, what is the gospel? Would you have had it? See, when Paul says, I made known to you the gospel, I assure you they knew exactly what he was talking about here when we say gospel. And, uh, you know, it's absolutely essential. We have clarity about what the gospel is. And I'm not going to do that this morning because we're going to spend the next four weeks going right here and answering, what is it? What does it mean? How does it apply in my life? See, we're going to answer that question. But, but for our moments here, my, my challenge and my charge this morning is simply to remind us it's of first importance. That's all I want you thinking about. It's of first importance. It's one Greek word, 
protos, and it can be translated, it's the first thing, like it's the first of three, it's the first of ten, first in a sequence. It can also be translated, though, it's first in the sense of it matters most, it's of most importance, it's the most significant, you see. How's it translated in our text? And by the way, it's translated correctly in our text, it's of first importance, you see, not, not simply it's the first thing in a line of many. While there is a first moment when we believe, Paul's saying, okay, that, that matters, but the gospel is of first importance at all time, the rest of your life. That means it's of first importance, gang, right now, in this moment, and the next and the next. And we see this I'm going to explore it just briefly. In these first two verses, we see why Paul tells us it's of first importance at all times. He writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which you stand. They believed the gospel. These are Christians. Read the first part, first chapter, chapter one, to the saints at Corinth, to the set apart ones, the holy. There was a moment in time when they placed their faith in Christ. They trusted, they believed. So he's talking to believers as he said this. But then he says in verse two, not just in which you stand, but he says, by which also you are saved. Now, saved here is a present passive verb. New American Standard says saved. If you have an ESV Bible, it says by which you are being saved, which is literally what he's saying. Now, wait a minute. I thought you said they're saved. And now Paul's saying they're being saved? How can you be saved and being saved at the same time? That doesn't make sense. Because that's what the Bible teaches. This is so fundamental, foundational, and important for us to understand. When we're not clear on our salvation, gang, it wreaks havoc in our spiritual life and our spiritual journey. When, when our understanding of salvation is incomplete or, quite frankly, inaccurate, we're in trouble. Bill touched on this last week. I hope you watch his message. If you missed it, maybe out of town on break. He explored some things that we're going to be taking apart, and he touched on this. Salvation has three components, okay? A little doctrinal teaching here. It's got three components. Salvation is being justified, it's being sanctified, and it's being glorified. And all three of these make up our salvation, what the gospel produces in us. You see, there's a moment in time when you believe, you place your faith in Christ, and you say, Jesus, what you did, you did for me. And in that moment, you and I are justified. We are declared not guilty, forgiven, righteous, declared that by God himself, you see. And there is coming a day, it's not now, or you wouldn't be sitting here talking to me because you're alive, you know, in the flesh. There's coming a day when we will be glorified. We will see him as he is. No sin nature. It'll be when you die, if you've trusted Christ, or when Christ comes again. There is nothing you can do to diminish or improve your justification. If there was, then we're not going to be clothed in Jesus' righteousness because we've got to bring our own. There's nothing you can do. Your sin, you see, 
doesn't affect your justification. And it does not affect your glory that is to come if indeed you're in Christ. You can't diminish or improve it. Paul even speaks of our glorification in past tense, Romans 8, because it's so sure. Hmm. But between our justification and our glorification, there is our sanctification. There is our growth in Christ. There is, what do we say at fellowship? Maturing in the faith, becoming more like Jesus in time. It's progressive, two steps forward, three steps back. It's, it's, it's a wobbly line of growth and change. Think about this. Why are you still here if you've been justified and you're going to be glorified? Why not just immediately go up? Because God leaves us here for a purpose and a reason to be changed into the image of Christ. And not just for ourselves, men and women, but for the world that needs the love of God. We're here to become more like Jesus through our sanctification. We've got to keep these three distinct and yet understand this is my salvation. When you confuse these, you're in trouble. For example, if you base your assurance of salvation on your sanctification, then you're... What did I say about sanctification? You're up, down. We know we still sin. If you're basing your assurance of salvation on your sanctification, then let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to start performing so that you know, you, you, you hope you've done enough so that you're secure in your salvation. That's, that's not the gospel. We base our assurance of salvation on our justification which never changes in Christ. And I'll tell you something. When you're working, so to speak, to feel assured, oh my gosh, you're on a razor's edge of actually you're working for your salvation, which is no gospel at all. Are you everybody with me on that? You got to be careful with these doctrinal categories. Back to the question of first importance because that's what I want to land on. Because we know Paul is speaking to those who are all, who, they already believe the gospel. Okay, we, we know that, right? Uh, we, we know that he's not just thinking of their justification, is he? He's, he's speaking to them because as, as you are being saved, that's that idea of, of sanctification. We know he's talking about their sanctification. It's clear that believing the gospel is not just about believing it the first time you believe it. What is it? It's about believing the gospel at all times. Always. Why? Because, the, because by the gospel, we are not just justified. We are sanctified by the gospel. I've got an ongoing struggle with codependency. I've talked about this before. You know, I'm a recovering codependent. Codependency is when you, it's that people-pleasing part many of us can struggle with. It's when, you know, I, I see myself not as God sees me, but I tend to see myself through your eyes. What does Hal think of me right now? You know, it's, it's like, what does people think? It's like my self-worth comes through your eyes, not God's. That, that's codependency. And man, I've, I've, I've struggled with that and, and will. Probably lost half of you right now. You're going, what are you talking about? You have no idea. But those of you who know what I'm talking about, stay with me. 
Uh, I've tried to think of another illustration, but I I couldn't think of one, and and this will seem inconsequential in some ways, but I think it'll get to the point. I'm constantly running into people. I can't go anywhere in in, in this town without running into someone who used to go to fellowship. Some of you are going to be in that category one day, you know? Uh, But, but, but you know, you run into them, and, and, and I'm just telling you, for me, you know, I just get this funk all over me like, oh my gosh, what did I do? Well, I, I probably said, what, what, what didn't we do for them? Gosh, why wouldn't they still be going? We do, now you see where that goes immediately? See where that went? It, it went to me. It's all about me. You know, it's just like I'm seeing. What, and and uh, in, that, in, in that moment, you see, what do I need when I'm just kind of going to shame? You know, it's just, no one needs to take care of me, by the way. You don't need to come up afterwards and say, man, we think it's great here. You know, don't do that. <laughs> It's fine, but, but what do I need in that moment? I, I, do, do I need to just go, think positive, think positive, everything, blah, blah, blah. God is in control. You know, I can think those things, but I'm gonna tell you what I need in that moment. The gospel. I need to preach it to myself. I need to remind myself that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, was buried and raised again. And that Jesus has said to me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that Jesus looks at me and says, you're enough and I love you, and I'm with you, that he's my deepest satisfaction. He's my all. He's enough. Jesus and my relationship with him to God the Father, that's my life. That's my life. Not trying to keep people at church, which is not my role at all, ever will be. It's Christ in my relationship with him. Are you with me? You see that? I need the gospel in that silly example. But we need it in every place in life. What, what are the consequences of the gospel not being of first importance, you know? They're staggering. Let me stay in the text. I'm gonna hit this real quick. What happened when the Corinthians no longer had the gospel as first importance? Divisions in the body, attitudes of arrogance. One guy sleeps with his stepmom and no one does anything. Another guy feels cheated and so he sues another Christian brother. Sexual promiscuity, immorality, marriage, marital rows get confused. Divorce is normal. Lord's table is dishonored. Spiritual gifts meant to build up the body are now destroyed. That's what happens. I'm not throwing them under the bus. You know why? Because I'd have to get under the bus myself. We'd all have to get under the bus. This is, do we think that 1 Corinthians is not for us? You think this stuff's not happening in this body? In me? No, let's embrace the letter. And let's take Paul's corrective word that the gospel's of first importance. Keep it there. It's not a word of shaming. I don't, we don't walk out of here shamed or anything by, by 1 Corinthians at all or by this word. Think about, think about Corinth. You talk about a place where, I don't know, I wouldn't want to try and plant a church there. I mean, are you kidding me? This place is a mess. What does Paul do? He goes, he preaches the gospel, the power of the gospel. And some believe, and there's a church in Corinth of all places. And it's still there four years later. Yeah, it's got problems, but Paul writes to correct those problems. That's the power of the gospel, and it, and it needs to remain of first importance in your life and mine. Listen, not just 28 years ago when you believed, but today, today and every day. I've summarized 1 Corinthians in this way related to our passage. When the gospel is not of first importance, 
the world will be. There's no Switzerland. There's no neutral place. There's no place to hide. If the gospel is not of first importance, then the world will be. It's the law of the land. And what do we give up when we, when we give that up? You know, they gave, think about what they gave up. Uh, Mark Dever, by the way, does a, does a review of, of uh, the, the, the Corinthian church and, and, he, and he gives three categories. They, they, were, they were supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to demonstrate unity and they were supposed to demonstrate sacrificial love, so to speak. So, so set apartness, uh, unity and diversity and sacrificial love. You think, well, th- that's what the church is supposed to show. Why is the church supposed to show those three things at least? Because that's what God looks like. We're not here just for ourselves. We exist to glorify God. And when they lost that which was of first importance, they gave up the very things that reflect God. And here's what, they gave it up for themselves and for Corinth that desperately needed the gospel. And y'all, we'll give it up too because we're not here for ourselves, but for our community, you see. We exist... Why do we do these things? Why do we talk about partnerships, mission? Why do we go? Because that's why we're here. To tell others the good news. We only go as we keep the gospel of first importance in our own lives. It's a word of great hope. And in that line, I want us to leave not weighted, down, but weighted with the power of the gospel in your life and mine. And so I will end this way. I'm going to ask everyone to stand and we're going to sing. We are going to declare what is true. We will speak, in a sense, the the nature of the gospel and the truths we believe. Because y'all, this is not only our hope, I hope we sense this, This is the hope of the world. Our trust in the gospel and carrying that news beyond these walls. Let's lift our voices and sing. Yeah, yeah.
reading together verses 3 through 5 of 1 Corinthians 15. And so I'm going to invite you to read out loud from the heart the good news, the gospel. Follow along with me. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And I pray that we would continue to find that the gospel is way more than we ever hoped for ourselves and for the world that desperately needs it. God bless.